I'm in a bookstore in Hong Kong, the city where I'm from, and among a shelf of penguin paperbacks, I see a book wrapped in plastic. In big lettering in English and Chinese, the plastic wrapping says, "Not suitable for readers under 18 years of age." Now, I'm not in the erotica section. I'm in the respectable English language literature section. So what could this be? I pick it up and see Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. A curious high schooler, I bought the book. It turned out that the wrapping was more enticing marketing than legal censorship, and read the account of Humbert Humbert, self-professed murderer and the unreliable first-person pedophilic narrator of the novel. Attempt to defend his quote-unquote love for a twelve-year-old American girl named Dolores Hayes. The writing was masterful and truly seductive. The language is so vibrant and glittering, complex enough to demand your full attention, but not so obscure that it lost you in its enchantment. So I was astounded when later I learned that Nabokov was born and raised in Russia, and that the first nine novels he published were written in Russian. Now I know that many critics say his multilingualism is exactly what makes his writing so unique, so full of wordplay and slippery charm. His English is infused with Russian, French, German, and his writing is as much the heir of Pushkin as Marcel Proust and Charles Dickens. The more I learn about Nabokov, the more I'm interested in his biography and his life as an emigrant from Russia. His family left in his late teens because of the Russian Revolution, and he never went back. He started his career writing in Russian, but his later works, including his most successful one, Lolita, were written in English. This intrigues me as someone born and raised in Hong Kong, but with more English in my head than Chinese. I wonder, did he worry that he was abandoning his people or the Russian emigrant community now that he was writing in English? Did he feel like he was now contributing to English literature rather than Russian literature? Did he want to abolish such boundaries altogether and create an individualized art that is an amalgamation of cultures and languages, as he himself was, and as many of us, maybe even all of us, are? But is it even possible to abolish such boundaries to be global or international when you have to be writing in one language and not the other? Sure, your English can be as infused with Russian as you want it to be, but it's still English. These are not the most refined thoughts and questions, but to help me make sense of some of them, I sat down with visiting assistant professor of Russian Luke Parker, who teaches a wonderful Nabokov course that I took in J term last year, to talk about Nabokov's multicultural, multinational life and writing career. We recorded for two whole hours, so this is going to be a two-parter. And in this first part, we focus on the story of Nabokov's childhood and initial exile in Berlin, which had a relatively substantial Russian emigre community between the Russian Revolution and the Third Reich. In this episode, we also go through the publication, translation, and censorship history of some of his novels, which gives us a fascinating insight into who his audiences were and what audiences he was trying to get. Even if you haven't read any Nabokov or are not interested in reading him. I think you'll find this story of emigration, of community and identity, of an experimental, talented, exiled writer trying to make it in a chaotic world, to be interesting and maybe even relatable. So, sit down and get ready for office hours with Professor Parker. 
Hello, Professor Parker. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to dive into all the questions we have about Nabokov's life and career and writing. Um, but first, could you just introduce yourself and give us a brief timeline of Nabokov's life? Sure. So my name is Luke Parker. Um, I'm a visiting assistant professor in the Russian department. So this is my first year at Amherst. So Nabokov is uh, is this figure that kind of straddles the 20th century. He's born in 1899 and he dies in 1977. And usually his life is divided into two halves, right? The Russian years and the American years with 1940 as this kind of dividing line. And this division has always led to this question of who does he belong to, right? Is he a Russian writer? Is he an English writer? Is he an American writer? Does he belong to American studies? But if you actually look at his life, even in geographical terms, you can more easily divide it into four roughly 20-year periods. So his Russian period from 1899 to 1919, when he leaves the country after the revolution, and this he spends in and around St. Petersburg. Then you have his period of European exile from 1919 to 1940, mostly in Berlin, with some time in, in Paris and the south of France. His American career from 1940 to 1960, so this is mostly spent at Cornell, teaching uh, with annual uh, butterfly hunting excursions during the summer. Every summer he would take these trips. And then once he'd uh, made enough money from Lolita to quit teaching and to um, be anywhere he wanted, he picked going back to Europe. So from uh, 1961 to his death in 1977, having lived this life of exile, this kind of double exile in Europe and America, he then had this third period of self-imposed exile uh, where he lived at a lakeside hotel um, in Montreux in Switzerland. Thank you for that. I was curious, did Nabokov ever go back to Russia once he left? He couldn't. He was not welcome. Not welcome. Yeah. And do we know what he thought of the word exile? And you talk about the self-imposed exile. Is that a word he used for that period also? That's really interesting. So the Russian emigres, like the word emigre is one we often use for this group. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a French word, so it has this kind of cachet already, right? But it also has these kind of political connotations um, related to the French Revolution. So these were the mm. people who chose by principle to leave the country rather than kind of just being kicked out. Although there were many who were kicked out, probably the majority who left um, Russia after the uh, revolution chose self-imposed exile. So emigre is not just like emigrant. It, it also has like strong political connotations. Yeah, yeah. So the word in Russian is emigrant, immigrant. Um, but there's, it like, it refers to this French word emigre. There's a distinction between emigrant, somebody who leaves somewhere, and immigrant, somebody who comes to be part of a new mm. society and try and assimilate and so on, like those connotations. For them, particularly in the European period in, in the 20s, um, they define themselves as people who've left Russia, but they're not deliberately trying to become, you know, become French or become German. They kind of are part of what was called Russia abroad. So this mm -hmm. other like alternative Russia. Cool. Um, thank you for that. Could you give us a bit more context about the Russian Revolution and Nabokov's family background and why he ended up not being welcome in yeah. Russia? Yeah. So. He's from a very prominent family. This is the, kind of one of the most important things. Like the name Nabokov in Russian is like 
already sonorous. Uh, and actually the name Vladimir Nabokov is already taken by his father. That's his father's name. So he grew up in an aristocratic family, but a liberal aristocratic family. So his father was one of the founders of a new political party who in kind of our terms is centrist. They were the constitutional Democrats. So you get the sense that there's kind of law, right? They want to be a law abiding country. They want a parliament, um, elections. So they're not the kind of typical aristocratic monarchy supporting family. You know, his father was part of the provisional government. So after the first revolution in February 1917, there was a kind of short-lived provisional government formed with elections and so forth. And he was part of that. Mm. And when the Bolsheviks took power in what many would call a coup, he was in danger. His life was in danger. And so he fled and uh, was only able to rejoin his family in Crimea in the south. And then they finally escaped. Yeah. So Nabokov is kind of part of this well-known family. But it, it wasn't just this kind of anonymous political affiliation. It was this really well-known, mm. uh, really well-known father. And Nabokov was around a teenager at this time? Yeah, so it's easy to kind of count his years because he's born in 1899. So in 1919, basically, he's 20. Mm. So he's kind of young. And then he goes straight to um, Cambridge. So he does a degree at uh, Cambridge uh, University in England and then finally settles in Berlin in 1922. Lovely. Let's stay on his childhood for a bit more. Mm -hmm. What was his education like? What languages did he learn? What literature, what history was he learning? And how Western was this? How Western was the Russian aristocratic class in terms of their cultural interests? Yeah, so particularly the liberal aristocrats um, and certainly the intelligentsia in general were highly Westernized. So they traveled throughout Europe um, they spoke multiple languages, you know, famously the language of the court was always French, right? So, mm. you know, War and Peace has all these long passages in French, right? They also wanted their children to grow up fluent in these other languages. So he had, so if you look at um, his memoir, Speak Memory, mm -hmm. he describes all of these tutors that he had. You know, one was uh, Russian, one, you know, German, one Swiss, right? So the idea was that he should grow up at least trilingual. And he says that his first language was English, not Russian. His father and Nabokov after him were famous Anglophiles. He talks in his memoir about, you know, English soap and the <laughs> smell of this English soap, right? Imported, uh, tailored clothes, you know, really kind of not just the intellectual and artistic, but also the material culture mm. of Europe was part of their part of their upbringing. So they really felt themselves to be European right? Really kind of westernized. Yeah, I'd love to know more about them being Anglophiles, because mm. what does he mean when he says his first language was English? I mean, it, it was quite typical for young aristocrats, wealthy, you know, children of wealthy families to be brought up by these governesses. So he had an English governess, right, who would kind of speak to him only in English, or later he had a French governess speak only in French. So mm -hmm. there was the kind of conversational fluency at some point, and it happened in his life, but also you kind of read about this in fiction, um, the parents realized that they actually can't write Russian very well, and it becomes <laughs> this embarrassment, and they have to kind of correct it. But yeah, and he read English literature high and low. He's a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes, for example, right, Conan Doyle. Uh, but he also reads Jules Verne. So it's kind of through literature, but also through this direct contact with these um, I guess you could think of them as like proto-exiles, these governesses who come over from these other countries, yeah. right? Um, he writes really movingly about this Swiss governess that he had who was always pining 
right for her homeland. So this is interesting. There's this like kernel of exile already in his childhood. Yeah, that's really interesting. After Nabokov's family left Russia, they briefly went to England, where he enrolled in Cambridge University. And since we didn't have time to touch more on this, I thought I'd supply you with an amusing quote from his memoir, written 30 years later. Not once in my three years of Cambridge, repeat, not once, did I visit the university library or even bother to locate it. I skipped lectures, I sneaked to London and elsewhere, I conducted several love affairs simultaneously, I had dreadful interviews with Mr. Harrison. And this was Nabokov's Cambridge tutor. In any case, he graduated with a degree in French and Russian literature, after which his family went on to settle in Berlin. Let's move on now to his Berlin years. Why did they end up in Berlin? How many Russian emigres were there in Berlin? And what was the community like? Mm. It's close. That's one thing, right? Why in Berlin first? Because it's closer. Um, it was cheap. So the two biggest centers were Berlin and Paris. Mm. Berlin, you know, the currency was devalued. And so it was incredibly cheap to live there. Once the currency stabilized after the hyperinflation kind of in the middle of the 20s, then people moved on to Paris and that mm. became the main center. Um, but it was it was quite typical for, for many to pass through Berlin. Berlin was also a place where you had Soviet writers and artists who would later return to the Soviet Union, kind of identify themselves as Soviet, um, were also there. So Berlin was this kind of crossroads where people were coming and mingling before the boundaries were really very clear of who mm. was going to stay and who was going to return. The Berlin community was very active. You know, it had newspapers and it had theaters. It kind of had its own cultural life. So it wasn't that unusual that Nabokov stayed there in the 20s, really with the advent of National Socialism and when Hitler starts to move toward power in 31 and certainly by 33, communities shrinking from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands of Russians. Um, and it becomes a very like noticeable choice that he stays there rather than move on to Paris. And he actually stays until 1937. Mm. So four years into the Third Reich, into Hitler's reign. And he's married to a Jewish woman. And by Nazi race laws, his son, Dimitri, who was born in 1934, was also considered Jewish. So it was a very dangerous choice. People often ask why, right? Yeah. His answer, and he's a great kind of trickster, right? <laughs> and he's always kind of pulling your leg. And you have to like, enjoy that and let that happen and not take it too seriously. Yeah. Um, but he says it was to preserve his Russian because he was fluent in French, fluent in English. And if he'd gone to Paris with everyone else, he would have, you know, been kind of contaminated with French <laughs> and wanted to become a French writer or something. So if he stays in Germany, he doesn't understand anything and, you know, he can keep his language pure. That's, you know, just just not true um his german wasn't as good as his french by any means but um he did understand it one of the main reasons he stayed was because his mother a widow after um the assassination of his father in 1922 something we haven't touched upon but hugely traumatic event in his life so his father is this prominent politician and he is at a political de debate and these two ironically enough monarchists so right-wing assassins try to assassinate the guy he's debating with and what Nabokov's father does is he kind of 
knocks the gun out of the hand of one of the assailants, right? So defending this guy on his left from assassins on the right. <laughs> but the second assassin then shot Nabokov's father several times in the back and, and killed him. So this kind of serious trauma, right, mm -hmm. after exile, more important probably than the fact of kind of losing his estate, losing his homeland. Um, so his mother is a widow and she lives in Prague, so further to the east. And so I think one of the obvious reasons is to stay closer to her as she gets older. Also, he's just contrary. Like, he doesn't want to be where all the other Russians are, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't want to be part of that culture. He wants to be part of something smaller. I think he felt more kind of freedom and independence in Berlin than he would have in Paris. Yeah, that brings us to what was Nabokov's relationship with the Russian emigre community in Berlin and elsewhere? He was well known. Right. He's the famous son of a famous father and he shares the father's name, right, mm -hmm. which is why he uh, he adopts a pen name. So he adopts his pen name Syrian. So he's V. Vladimir Syrian. He kind of has two identities, right? So on the one hand, he's seen as this hope for the future of um, the Russian immigration. Like it's one thing to be a kind of an older writer and come into exile with a career already behind you. And to try and keep that going, maybe work on translations, you know, try and kind of help that career keep living in, in exile. A good example of this is Ivan Bunyan, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for literature in 1933. So he was kind of held up as this like, yes, we can, we can do this, we can keep going. Um, but they really looked to the younger generation, like they were desperate. You, you read the correspondence between editors of journals and they're saying like, we, we need some new blood in here, like we'll, let's publish somebody. And this is how um, the Lusion Defense, his Nabokov's great chess novel, um, is serialized in this big journal, Contemporary Annals in, in Paris. Like they actually say, we need something, just give us anything, and, and he gives them this. So on the one hand, he's seen as this kind of great hope of the future of Russian emigre literature, that they can compete with the Soviets, right, who are getting all the attention, mm -hmm. all the press. Everyone wants to know about what the Soviets are doing. It's this kind of great experiment, artistic, you know, fermentation. And the emigres are seen as this kind of, you know, has-beens, mm. right, just carrying on their old thing. So he's there to disprove this on the one hand, but on the other hand, he has ambitions much bigger than just being a Russian emigre writer. Mm -hmm which we will get on to later. Just to round out his biography before we jump into his, his work and his language, I assume he left Berlin because of the war, because of Hitler. Is it is that true? Um, so he leaves in 1937. I think, yes, he recognizes that it's dangerous. Right. But also, by 1937, he's already looking to England to get a job in England teaching literature, if possible, it never works out. He already has the beginnings of an American career at that point. He has an American agent. He has a contract for the for his first American book, Laughter in the Dark. Mm. Um, so I think moving westward is kind of a natural move. But, you know, he didn't get the, the carte de séjour, so the, the papers that he needed, right, the residence permit, until 37. It wasn't just anyone could settle there. So France kind of made it difficult for him to to get there. But it's because of the war that he leaves Europe entirely. So okay. 1940 is when he, like, Hitler invades France and moving towards Paris, and that's when he finally hightails it out. Got it, got yeah. it. Is there anything else about more biography that you think we should touch on? Like any other things like the death of his father that I forgot to mention. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, well, he got married in the mid-twenties, right, to Viera. Um, there's a very interesting biography of her. By? 
Uh, Stacy Schiff. Yeah, Stacy Schiff. Mm-hmm. Um, the birth of his son, 1934, Dimitri. They had one son who later raced cars, you know, sending his father and mother's heart rate racing. <laughs> um, they were terrified for him. He eventually becomes an opera singer. Oh. Um, so it's this very kind of like cosmopolitan, um, cosmopolitan life. Yeah, so he has brothers and sisters. He has several brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the figures is his brother, Sergei, whose fate is uh, kind of being re-examined at the moment and the kind of the centrality of this figure. So he's homosexual and he lives in Paris and he's kind of very prominent in like social artistic circles, mm-hmm. often not spoken about or acknowledged by uh, Nabokov. They had a very fraught relationship. If you read Speak Memory, you know, lots of very interesting work has been done on kind of looking at the scenes in which Sergei is there. And there's this clear kind of fraternal, like sibling rivalry for the favor of their father. Nabokov is the oldest, Vladimir mm. Nabokov is the oldest, Sergei is younger. Um, but there's always this kind of self-definition against Sergei, which, you know, the whole topic of sexuality in Nabokov is fascinating, right? It's fraught, but it's it's already very sophisticated and interesting. Nabokov finds out during the Second World War in America that his brother has died in a concentration camp. So he's this kind of, um, I mean, it's simplistic to say the kind of the ghost of Sergei, but like, I think Nabokov is haunted uh, by the fate of his brother. Nabokov is not guilty for what happened to his brother, mm-hmm. but um, clearly that sense of survivor's guilt um, is very prevalent in in Nabokov, and not not just for his brother, but also for all of the you know Russian Jewish editors and publishers, some of whom were in charge of contemporary annals that really brought him on, um, who also died in in concentration camps, and so it's kind of him as a survivor, his brother as as a victim. So I think. The Second World War and the Holocaust is something that really kind of sits in the background of Nabokov's works all the, all the way through to the end. And you, you have these kind of references in, in various places. That is biography kind of both familial, but also communal, right? It's something mm-hmm. that happened to Nabokov and his family, but it's also something that happened to him as a Russian emigre, but also married to a Jewish woman. So kind of very close to the Russian Jewish community. So I think he... F- kind of feels those things and finds ways to express them, but they're, you know, they're not easy things to to deal with. So that was a lot of information in very little time, but now we've come to the point of the episode where we're going to switch gears a little and look at Nabokov's life, this time from the perspective of his writing career. So this is what he wrote, when he wrote it, and how he corresponded tirelessly with agents, translators, publishers, even movie producers to get his work printed, read, and recognized. Could we do a quick list of his novels? Like, before he leaves for America, what did, what did he oh, publish? Oh, it's a list. <laughs> it's a list. So... His first, and maybe I'll kind of talk a bit about the translation history of these novels too, yeah. because um, I would say that he has a trilingual career from the outset, which is not something if you think of, you know, so there's this great two volume biography of him, a fantastic read, really, really beautifully written. First volume is called The Russian Years, second volume is called The American Years. <laughs> is this Brian Boyd? It is Brian Boyd. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a really incredible work. But Obviously, if you actually look at his career 
and what he's publishing is in multiple languages from the start. So his first books, other than books of poetry, so he writes poetry, right? So in Russia, poetry, and then poetry in, in Berlin. He's not a major poet at all, right? He's kind of, he's beginning his career. He then writes short stories, um, but his first books that he publishes are actually translations, translations from French and translation from English. And it's actually, you know, you can still buy the translation from English today. It's actually Alice in Wonderland. In Russian. In Russian. Mm. Which is, you know, so fitting, right? Yes. All of these themes in the Lewis nonsense Carroll. words, the nonsense words, right? But also Alice, the figure of Alice herself and, and what we know about Lewis Carroll, right? And his photographs of these young girls. Uh -huh. <laughs> right? It's interesting. There's a lot going on there. So the first works are translations and then his first novel. In fact, his first two novels published in 1926 and 1928. So this is Mary and King Queen Maeve um, are both translated into German. And actually they give him a contract to translate his second novel before it's even written or just on the basis of the first one. Mm. And so, you know, he has this kind of mini German career actually before he has a French or an English one, uh, which is not something people talk about very often. And then his next novel is Delusion Defense and that is translated into French. Also Despair is translated into French and then um, Camera Obscura. And this is his great cinema novel mm. um, that he writes in 1931 and uh, it's translated into French and then into English by somebody else. So into kind of British English for, for a British audience with not a great publisher, not a good publisher at all. Uh, he said he felt like a, a hummingbird in a world of rhinoceroses. And that novel, so it's already, you know, translated twice, is then what he gets a contract from an American publisher to rework, retitle, slightly rework into an American version. And that's what we know as Laughter in the Dark. Also in there we have Glory, um, invitation to a beheading, and then his great Russian novel, the closest he comes to a, you know, a doorstopper, um, is The Gift. And so the amount of stuff he is producing, he's also producing plays, he continues to write poetry, he continues to publish collections of short stories, does translations himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, incredibly prolific. And in different genres for different audiences, it's very calculated. You almost get the sense of a scattershot approach. He's not sure what's going to take, what will be his, his kind of next outlet, where will he go next? So just to clarify all of those, he wrote in Russian yeah. and other people translated? So this is a, that's a good question. So other people translated into German mm -hmm. and other people translated into French. It was actually a Russian, another Russian immigre mm -hmm. in Paris who translated Camera Obscura as a Chambre Obscure. And he was happy with that translation. He was so unhappy with the translation into English mm. of Camera Obscura that he wrote to his mother that his translators had tormented him with such devilish torments that he was going to translate the next novel himself. And so in 1936, he gets to work translating Despair, Achaenia in Russian, into English, and it comes out in 1937. And that's his kind of first independent translation of his work into English. And you notice it's 37. He's still in Europe. Yeah. So 37, he has this book come out that he's translated into English. He has in America, Laughter in the Dark comes out in 38. So he has these kind of multiple overlapping careers already. And from that moment on, he translates, um, you know, he'll be his own English translator or he'll have kind of veto power over the translations. Got it. Do you know if the Berlin emigre community loved these novels? <laughs> Did they love these novels? <laughs> um, so I think the best way to look at it is to look at the history of the newspaper, The Rudder. 
Rul in Russian, the rudder. Um, it was founded by his father and two others. Um, and so it was kind of like this family newspaper, right? Nabokov's mm -hmm. Connected. And that's where he publishes his first poems and, you know, short stories. He's kind of starts his emigre career there. And so all of the people who were reviewing him in that newspaper are kind of, even though his father is gone from 1922, right? His, his name is still on the masthead and mm. he still has this kind of authority. So it's really this kind of inner circle of like patronage that he gets. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they write very favorably of him in Berlin. Um, that newspaper closes down in 1931, and that support network really kind of goes away after mm -hmm. that point. Um, Paris is a lot more, you know, the Russians in Paris are a lot more ambivalent towards him. And there's one particularly influential group called the Paris Note, kind of like Russian Montparnasse, basically, this kind of group mm. um, that really doesn't like him. <laughs> and when they admit that he's talented, it's still very begrudging. Like, it's talented, but we wish he'd written something different. Um, and there's one really kind of outrageous attack on him by a poet called Georgi Ivanov that says that basically he's a he's an imposter. He's this kind of fake aristocrat, uh, charming everyone, but really he's just copying European models. So this is one of the things the Russians say about his Russian uh. is that it reads like a translation. It's like he's just copied some other novels. But they also say it reads like it's written to be translated. And as his one of his friends who's in England, um, Gleb Struva points out, these things kind of cancel each other out, right? Like people <laughs> propose all these different models, like he's a copy of this, he's a copy of this. Well, if he's a copy of like five or six very different things, maybe he's actually his own <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, there are these charges of non-Russianness. He's not mm. Russian enough, you know? which in the extreme form is he's this fake, he's kind of this puffed up wannabe. But even from more conservative, rather than these kind of young poets, from more conservative circles, he's seen as, you know, not following the Russian tradition. Like he's, he's kind of... He's not loyal to not loyal. the Russian community or language. Exactly, yeah. They're very concerned in these years, as you could probably guess, right? They know, the Russian emigres know from about 1925, they won't be able to be published in the Soviet Union. And mm -hmm. he knows that he will one day be read in Russia, but it might not be in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so they're very concerned to preserve what they see as this heritage of Russian literature, particularly 19th century Russian literature, because the Soviets have in the 20s, not in the 30s so much, but in the 20s, very iconoclastic, you know, like throw them all off the steamship of modernity, get rid of all this culture and make something new. Right. And so they feel like they're these kind of museum guards and curators trying to keep this stuff alive. And Nabokov's not doing that. And he's not doing that. Although, as we know, if you read him, if you kind of take a step back, if you're not so heavily personally invested <laughs> as some of these figures were in the 20s, right? hundred years later, we come along and say, Oh, he's completely like infused with the Russian tradition. He just makes his own tradition, you know, he selects. Do you have some examples of what parts of the Russian tradition you see infused in his work? Yeah, there's some really fantastic work that's been done on this by a scholar called Alexander Delinin. Basically, you know, Nabokov selects his own tradition of, of Pushkin, of Gogol, of Chekhov, right? So there are these kind of figures who have at times been held up as inherently Russian. But at times, been, at times they don't really fit, right? If you take as kind of what is Russian literature, and this was a Russian view, but it also became a popular in the English world after all these translations happened at the turn of the 20th century, mm -hmm. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, they're Russian, 
right? Big novels, large baggy monsters, right? These these kind of descriptions. Um, spiritual issues, right? Mm -hmm. Torment, right? Um, you see this in the movies of these years. It's kind of peasants or counts, yes. you know? And maybe some Cossacks with some trick writing thrown in, right? But it's either like champagne and debauchery or religious torment and, you know, suffering. Mm -hmm. Well, he's not really about either of those things, right? But nor is all of Russian literature. So again, that other tradition, the kind of this official one that was held up, was also selective. A great example of this is the first book he publishes in America, or first book he writes in America, is called Nikolai Gogol. Mm -hmm. And it's this introduction to Gogol, but it's really a, a book of sticking his flag into this writer and saying, here is this genius of the Russian language, even though he was Ukrainian, he spent a lot of time uh, in the West, he didn't really know Russia, very well, he didn't travel around it that much, um, but it's the language and he uses this language as this incredible instrument. And I think Nabokov is kind of telling his American audience, and then there's me, and and you should read me, and you should translate my works, right? And, and the same thing happens in the 60s when he does this translation with a commentary of um, Eugene Onegin um, mm. by Pushkin. It causes this huge flap and, you know, it's, it's a separate question. But it's again him saying, look, here is this quote unquote Russian writer that represents everything there is about Russia, who is completely suffused with French and English and German, like European culture. Mm -hmm. um, and he's also speaking about himself, right? It's an argument that he is no less Russian for being Western. And I think today this is also a big question, right? Yeah. Thinking about the nature of Russia, where does it belong? Yeah. Do you think it's fair to say that throughout his life, Nabokov wasn't really trying to get a Russian emigre audience or a Russian audience, or like he was setting his sights towards a Western, French, English, American audience? I think that it's tempting to say that because he is strikingly transnational and has these far-reaching ambitions. But what is quite amazing is that at the same time as he has agents, publishers, editors in France, in Britain, in America. He's personally corresponding with all of them. At the same time as that, this is in the mid-30s, he's working on this great Russian novel, The Gift. Mm -hmm. And he knows there's no audience for it. He knows that, you know, he's, he writes these letters to his American publisher saying like, no, that you could definitely translate this into English. Like, I could translate this without even needing footnotes. People would be able to completely understand it. And this other Russian emigre, Alexander Nazarov, writes a read report basically saying, this is for a hyper-sophisticated, hyper-literate audience who's very aware of the Russian tradition. Well, how many of those are there in English <laughs> in the late 1930s, right? So I think, yes, he's writing for contemporary kind of Western audience. And yeah, he's writing for the emigres, but he's also writing for this future Russian reader that doesn't yet exist. Mm -hmm. He's really sure that his work will be remembered and will one day return to Russia. He's both in the present, but also focused on the future. I'm curious about the gift now. Is it very different to his other novels? Why is it so Russian and specific? Two things. It's about a poet, kind of based on a young Nabokov. Mm. And he kind of lies in bed writing poetry and he he's kind of obsessed with Pushkin. He reads Pushkin, thinks about Pushkin. So it's about this love for Russian literature. There's a love story kind of in there, but you know, the 
idea is the heroine is also Russian literature, but it's also this quite formally experimental novel. Like it's this work within a work. So one chapter is a biography of Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who's this kind of 19th century, like radical thinker by the hero of the novel, mm. you know, and another one is like, um, is this kind of travels of his father, like this whole chapter devoted to his father, who's this explorer who goes to the far East and so on. So there's, it's lots of parts, right? But the thing that's really interesting about this novel is that um, the Russian emigres, it was perhaps the one time in Russian history that you have no censorship. They're completely free. Freedom's difficult for a writer or an artist because it sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between complete freedom and absolute irrelevance, right? Nobody's paying for you. You know, nothing is writing on the outcome of whether you write or don't write or produce or don't produce, right? So they have no state support. They don't have this huge, you know, millions of readers like they do back in Russia, but they also don't have any censorship. Nobody's looking over their shoulder. Mm -hmm. And what's so amazing is that they censor themselves. So this chapter four of The Gift, that's this biography of this Chernyshevsky, is suppressed by contemporary annals, by this journal in, in France, because its editors are these uh, former socialist revolutionaries. And for them, Chernyshevsky is like this kind of saint-like mm. figure. And so it's like heretical. And so they say, I'm sorry, we're not going to publish this. Which, you know, it, it's amazing that he continues writing this Russian literature, but even his Russian audience, right? who had published all of these novels throughout the thirties of his and kind of, you know, held him up as this great figure would not, would not even publish all of his work. But it, the gift did come out. So the gift doesn't come out in full in Russian because they wouldn't publish this right. until 1953. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it came out in America. So I think in some ways a less interesting topic than, than the emigres, but it, it's worth keeping in mind that he kept writing things in Russian in America. He kept, up his friendships with other Russian emigres. And yeah, he kept up this work with Russian emigre publishing houses, even in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he just, you know, completely cut off the Russian side. He always kind of, you know, right. yeah, had this Russian identity. There is so much more to be discussed about his writing in relation to censorship, to translation, to audience. I was personally really moved by the idea of the future Russian reader that Nabokov might have been writing for, and the hope that one day he might be read in his homeland. We're going to talk about that a lot more in part two in the next episode, but for now we're going to quickly go through the rest of his novels, so keep your pencils out, there's going to be a lot more to add to your reading list. While we're here, why don't we quickly run through the rest of his big works, just to round out his biography before we move on to discussing his work more in detail. Yeah, so his first novel that he writes in America is Ben Sinister, that comes out in 1947. And it's really, it's very, very dark. And it's about a kind of a, you know, a totalitarian regime, essentially. But there's a lot of kind of cruelty. The hero's wife dies at the beginning of an illness. Um, his son is killed, kind of this brutal murder at the end and essentially the main character either goes mad or is kind of released from his torments by being taken out of the story by the narrator. Um, but it's, you know, it's not a, a light work, like something like Laughter in the Dark, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of thinking about popular audiences, it's an interesting, interesting one. 
And then he um, publishes Pinyin. So he first uh, serializes that in the New Yorker. That is quite light, even though it has this kind of, you know, background, like this character, Pinyin is this Russian uh, emigre uh, professor. Mm. Wayndell College, it's kind of made up college. Um, and Nabokov, you know, was a Russian professor at this point. And so this character is kind of based on his experiences, right? But obviously a composite of, you know, other people, not at all like Nabokov. But it's it's quite humorous, right? Serialized. Um, but his big kind of the work that really changes everything is Lolita. Mm. Um, and it has this fascinating kind of relationship to other countries and to censorship. So it's first published in Paris by uh, Maurice Giraudias um, and his Olympia Press. Giraudias, like his father, Jack Kahane, who owned Obelisk Press, publishes things that will not be published elsewhere. You know, we like to compartmentalize these things, right? Railing against censorship is principled. Uh, profiteering from kind of smutty <laughs> literature is bad. Well, often they go together, mm. right? Scandal motivates both um scandal can be profitable so he would publish on principle you know whatever was censored in britain whatever was censored in america but he would also publish you know anything that would be scandalous just inherently to make money um and so it's an it's odd and also a completely fitting place for nabokov's novel to come out comes out in 1955 in paris um and graham green who had been a film critic and also was a writer who had kind of two series. You know, he wrote his kind of entertainments and he wrote his serious novels, right? And he kind of thought of them in, the, in these ways. Um, he recommends it as one of the best books, the top three of the year, and that draws people's attention. And, and there's this whole interesting story of how it gets taken on by uh, Putnam and Sons in the United States. And finally it's published in 58 and is, has a huge splash, but it's very carefully coordinated how this thing comes out. There's fascinating work on, you know, Namakov not wanting any picture of Lolita, of Dolores Hayes, right? Of the main character of the girl on the cover. He does not want it to be scandalous in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but then it is adapted for the screen by Stanley Kubrick. And you have this famous poster image, right? Of the girl with the heart-shaped glasses. Yes. Not an image that actually even appears in the film. Yeah. Which is also quite fascinating. And it, from that image grows this whole kind of industry of basically visualizing Dolores Hayes through Humbert Humbert's eyes, utterly counter to the whole thrust of the novel, mm -hmm. which is to undermine eventually, right? To undermine Humbert Humbert's seductive view, like seductive language that is meant to um, make the reader complicit with his view of this girl as a kind of, you know, an object of desire and only that. And Nabokov writes this novel in such a way that her voice starts to come through. The distortions of his perspective start to come through. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all lost in the film and it's lost in the whole later imagery of, of this novel, which basically is kind of when people, I think, think of Nabokov today, they kind of think of that imagery and they yeah. think of Lolita, not in terms of the novel, if they've, you know, read it, but just in terms of a quick plot summary and an, and an image, mm -hmm. uh, which is, again, kind of, it's ironic given that he worked to undo that, but also he worked with the culture industry. He worked in order to have his work publicized. And one of the ways was movie adaptations. And so he got what he wanted in the end. You know, that money, he says, Lolita was a difficult birth, but she was a grateful daughter. Um, you know, 
enabled him to quit teaching at Cornell and move back to Europe and kind of support himself in this kind of palatial hotel <laughs> on by a lake, right, for the rest of his uh, for the rest of his life. So after Lolita, he writes another, you know, absolutely phenomenal novel, Pale Fire. It's a long poem written by an American poet, John Shade, with an introduction and a very long, much longer than the poem, commentary, uh, and a quite wacky index by this Russian, and he says he's not Russian, he says he's Zemblin scholar, uh, who uses the commentary to tell the story of how he is the deposed king of Zembla. It's again, this kind of seems to be simple, seems to be this kind of, you know, poem has been hijacked by this crazy, right, emigre. Um, but then it gets more complex in the way that Lolita gets more complex. And you start to see the kind of affinity and the merging of these things and the and the entrance of the these kind of almost supernatural kind of spiritual connections between them. Um, it's very interesting. And then he wrote, you know, several other novels after that. You know, look at the Harlequins, Transparent Things, Arda is probably the greatest of the kind of late, late novels. Um, and then there was um, the original of Laura that was released in this kind of note form to some kind of a claim, you know, fairly recently, but, um, you know, it's not, it's incomplete. So. And on that note of incompleteness, we're going to have to cut it off here for part one of Office Hours with Professor Parker. A big thank you to Professor Parker for coming onto the podcast for two episodes, and a big thank you to you two for listening. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to everything we talked about, and if you'd like to learn more about Nabokov's time in Weimar Berlin, or if you have an interest in early cinema, I'd encourage you to check out Professor Parker's new book. It's called Nabokov Noir, Cinematic Culture and the Art of Exile, and we have ebook access through Frost. After you check that out, join us in a few weeks' time for part two of my conversation with Professor Parker. There we get a little more theoretical and talk about born translated writing, the differences and similarities between translation and adaptation, and why Nabokov's language is so delightful to read. Until then, I hope you get to enjoy some beautifully scented English soap, maybe read some Nabokov, go butterfly hunting, and even return to your pined-for homeland over Thanksgiving break. See you then, and goodbye!